He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together this morning to be refreshed through singing hymns as we worship you, reflecting upon your power, that you are our fortress, you are our bulwark, you are the rock of ages that protects us, and you have given us ultimate victory over Satan and his minions, and you have given us a salvation that is beyond anything that we can ask or think. Father, we thank you for your word, the living word and the written word that informs us of all that you have done for us and helps us to understand what has transpired in our own lives as we came to understand the good news that Christ died for us and trusted in him and that we were made new creatures in Christ, regenerated, born again, and that now we have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray as we study your word today that you would challenge us For the focal point of this whole passage is not on what you have done in the past, but what you are doing in the present and the purpose for which you have done these things in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ and to serve you, for we have been uh, created for good works, that is, service for you. Help us to understand and apply these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and this morning we're going to study the first three verses. Last week we did a flyover of 1 through 10 so we could understand the flow, the structure, everything that is here, and today we are going to get start getting into some of the details. There are very significant details, and so one of the things we're looking at is this idea of total inability or total depravity. Now, some of those words might not be as familiar to you. The term total inability is a word that has gradually over the last hundred years or so taken uh, more uh, prominence, especially among Calvinists. And total inability is the idea that man is totally dead They interpret the idea of spiritual death as total inability, that man can't uh, hear the gospel, man can't have positive volition toward God, can't hear the gospel, can't understand the gospel, can't do anything until first he is made alive, and then he can hear, and then he can believe. For them, regeneration precedes faith. It negates personal volition and responsibility. 
On the other side, you have the term total depravity. Almost everyone believes in total depravity who is a Christian. There are some who are on the more extreme Arminian side that may have a somewhat uh, diluted view of total depravity, but they understand that. This is a one of the most distinguishing features that separates Christianity, biblical Christianity, from other uh, religions or faiths, let's say, for all religion is an attempt by man to somehow curry favor with God on his own efforts. And we believe that man is not able to do that. Sometimes when you read definitions of total inability, you can read through most of it and say, I agree with that, because what they are saying is that man is not able to save himself, man is not able to regenerate himself, and that is true. But then they go on to make other statements, and as we saw, as I introduced last time, what that means is they have an idea that spiritually dead means man is like a corpse, and he can't hear, he can't uh, think, he can't do anything until first he is made alive. And we'll see that that is not the biblical, the biblical view. A number of passages are against that. So this is fun, foundational to understand these 10 verses. They are all about being made alive in Christ. In Ephesians 2.5, following for the introduction of God as the subject in verse 4, but God, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I pointed out last time that when you look at that parenthetical phrase, which is an explanation in part of what was just said, the word saved is synonymous with being made alive together. That's fundamental. What that tells us is being made alive together is synonymous with the term regeneration or being born again, and that is in this context synonymous with being saved. So when Paul talks about by grace you have been saved, what he is saying is by grace you have been made alive together with Christ. So that when we get to verse 8, which is a verse familiar to all of us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that opening line in verse 8 is first introduced in verse 5, which tells us that verses 8 and 9 are a quick summary and further explanation of what is transpiring in verses 4 and 5. That's why verse 8 begins, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The for means that this is an explanation of what has just transpired. So we read in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. And so we see that this phrase, the that, refers to the salvation through faith. But more than that, what we see is that it is emphasizing regeneration. For by grace you have been saved could be or is explaining in context, for by grace you have been regenerated through faith. Now, over the years, you've been taught fairly well about various doctrines, including regeneration. What you may not know, and we'll get into this more and more as we go along, is that there's a lot of confusion among 
fairly orthodox, fairly biblical theologians about just what it means to be regenerated. What does it mean to be born again? Um, I'm not going to go into all of those details, but we have to understand just some basics about what the Scripture says. We looked at this three or four weeks back, and in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're told that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. First of all, that word natural, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. That word in the Greek is psuchikos. It does not mean natural. It is a word formed on suke, the word for soul, and should be understood as the soulish man. He's lacking something. What is he lacking? In spiritual death, we learned last time, that spiritual death means that we're alienated from the life of God. It does not mean that we're a, a corpse. We are a- alienated from God's life, but we still have uh, many other factors that are important in understanding uh, understanding spiritual truth. But we can't truly understand it on our own. There must be help. But we have to understand how regeneration impacts this. In Jude 19... In referencing unbelievers, non-Christians, Jude says these are the ones who cause divisions, they're the false teachers, worldly-minded. Well, it doesn't say worldly-minded. The Greek word for world is cosmos. It has nothing to do with cosmos. The Greek word that is there is the same word we have in 1 Corinthians 2.14. It is sukikos. It is saying that the soulish man... Uh, that these are soulish. They cause divisions. They're soulish, which indicates they're not saved. And then the next phrase, as it's typically translated, uses the word spirit, pneuma, but it capitalizes it. That's an interpretation because in the original Greek manuscripts, there's no capitals. They're either all capitals or all lowercase, but you don't have words distinguished as proper nouns, so you have to make an interpretive decision. Well, the problem is that last phrase literally in the Greek says pneuma may ekontes. Pneuma is the spirit, may is not, and ekontos is having. So you can translate it literally as not having spirit. So sukikos is defined here as those who do not have spirit. And so we have to understand what spirit means because that is what is necessary in order to understand, truly understand, the Scriptures. We talked about this under the uh, fact that when we were saved back in Ephesians 2, uh, 16, it says that we ha- having the eyes of our, uh, of our thinking enlightened. That enlightenment is a perfect tense verb indicating past completed actions, what happened at, at salvation. And when we were spiritually dead... This was the fulfillment of Genesis 2.17, that the day that Adam or Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die spiritually. It was immediate. They didn't die physically for another 900 years. So the Bible teaches that there are three parts to the human being. There's his body, physical body. There is the soul, which is immaterial. And then there is a third component called the human spirit. Now, in two passages, in Ephesians, um, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and Hebrews 4.12, the scriptures clearly distinguish body, soul, and spirit. 
Now, there are other passages where soul and spirit can be used interchangeably and are. That's, that's how language is. Some words at some context can be synonymous, but in other contexts, it is clear that there is something that mar- marks them as distinct. So in spiritual death, what happened is the Adam and Eve probably didn't lose the spirit, but it no lo- was no longer functional for them. The human spirit is that which enabled them to understand God, to serve God, to have a relationship with God, and everything in terms of the spiritual life was uh, is based on the function of the human spirit. It works through the mentality, it works through the uh, self-consciousness, it works through the conscience, and it works through the individual volition. So in spiritual death, those were not directed toward God anymore. And so at the instant of faith, that human spirit is restored. Now, there's some debate as to whether we have a spirit as spiritually dead person, it's just not functional, or whether we don't have a spirit. I think Jude is very clear. Not having spirit doesn't mean it's there but dormant. It says you don't have it. So on that basis that we understand regeneration to be in part the restoration or the rebirth of this human spirit, which gives us the potential to have our relationship with God and to walk with him to understand his word and what is going on. Now, this comes through faith. It's clear, as I pointed this out last time, that faith in the Greek indicates this is the means. It is through faith. So we have our water pipe here, which is the water pipe of faith, and the water is the water of life. It comes through the pipe, through the channel of faith, and there is a valve, and that I've labeled the volition valve. And so the spiritually dead sinner who's separated from the life of God needs the water of life. He's alienated from God, and unless he has that, he will not have life. So he can either turn the valve on or not. When he turns the valve on, the water of life, that is the gospel, flows through, and he drinks of the water of life and is born again. But the point is there's an order of events here, and that is the faith precedes the reception of the gospel, okay? You're, and, and by that I mean the giving of new life. So it's faith first. Through faith, we're regenerated. That means faith precedes regeneration. That is very clear in this passage, that faith precedes regeneration. And so this theological idea of, of high Calvinism that regeneration precedes faith is not biblical. And we have to understand that because you'll run into that. There has been such a resurgence of Calvinism in the last 40 years, but it is a very tight, intricate system of theology, and a lot of people are attracted by that and the fact that it's 500 years old and they, uh, they relish in things like that. But we have to build our theology from what the text says and not what seems to be theologically consistent. So the other part of Ephesians 2.8 that we saw is that when it says that, not of yourselves, that that cannot refer to the word faith because in the Greek the demonstrative pronoun that is a, a neuter 
pronoun, and a neuter pronoun must refer to a, uh, a neuter noun, or it can refer to a phrase. But the nouns grace and faith are feminine gender, and God's not gender confused. And so when it says, and that, that that cannot refer to either faith or grace. But as I pointed out last time, it was typical in Greek if you were going to refer to a phrase, a clause, a sentence, a book, something much larger than just a word, then you would use a neuter pronoun instead of a masculine or a feminine uh, pronoun. And so what the verse says, that we've been saved through faith, and that by, that by grace through faith salvation is not of yourselves, but is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we saw that there is a need for salvation. That's expressed in the first three verses, which talk about our spiritual death and the characteristics of spiritual death, which is the focus this morning. The main idea in the whole section is God as the subject, the grammatical subject in verse 4, that God in verse 5 made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places. That's what this is all about. But we that's what happened in the past when we were saved. But before we were saved, there was something further in the past, and that is the problem of our spiritual death. So there's three parts to this section. The first part is what we were before we were saved in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The second part is the solution, what happened when we were saved, that God's love and mercy is defined as God's grace in that passage, that it is uh, through the mercy of God and his love, and then the appositional phrase, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace defines that action of God's love and his mercy. And that is the basis for God regenerating us, raising us, and seating us positionally in Christ. And then the purpose is given down in verse 10, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So as we look at the first three verses today, I want to review a couple of key concepts, one of which I've already reviewed, which is regeneration. Then we will look at a little bit more about what the Bible teaches about spiritual death, what it is and what it isn't. And we'll see then if we are spiritually dead and alienated from God, and if according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, the soulish man, the unsaved person, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, how does he come to understand the gospel? This is very clear. We'll just look at one passage. There are many I could go to, but we're going to focus on one passage. Then we'll look at what, uh, uh, what is meant by our we walk according to the course of the world, and then we'll see that that all was directed towards the Gentile unbelievers, but then Paul includes the Jewish unbelievers in the next verse in Ephesians 2, 3. It's very important to distinguish those pronouns, the we and the you. The we either refers to we unsaved Jews, we saved Jews, and sometimes it refers then to we Jew and Gentile saved in Christ. The you always refers to you Gentile, so we have to keep that 
distinction in mind. Now, the next thing that I want to point out as part of, part of the review is that as we go through Ephesians here, we have two things that are mentioned. We have that which relates to who we are in Christ, our position in Christ. That's mentioned several times as we go through it. For example, in 2.10, that we were created in Christ for good works. That's talking about who we are in Christ, our position. But position needs to change our experience, and that is always expressed by especially the word walking. And so we were created in Christ Jesus, our position in Christ, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, that's experience, walk in them. Position means that we should have an experience that conforms to who our identity and who we are. So we have these two categories. You're familiar with the chart. We trust Christ, believe on him for salvation, Acts 16.31. And then we have two realities that apply to us, the eternal realities, which is our position in Christ. I use a white circle because we are in the light. We are sons of the light, but we do not always walk as if we are sons in the light. So in terms of our position in Christ, the church-age believer, only church-age believers were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. That's called the baptism by the Holy Spirit or identification by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, at the instant of salvation, we are regenerated, we're given new life, and we become a new creature in Christ. We are adopted into God's royal family. So we have this little illustration that helps people with this. You are born into a family. Now, in the family in which you were born, let's take Wesley here. He's born into a family of believers. His father exercised strict control and discipline and guidance and instruction on his children. I am sure, I haven't asked him, but I am sure there were times when his father would say, you are in the Hunt family, and this is how we in the Hunt family live. He's laughing. Is that right? Okay, that's it. Verbatim. That is his position. He's a member of that family. Now, I'm just guessing here because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that that would include uh, Wesley Hunt. And so he probably did things that violated those standards that his father set. And he would say something like, no one in this family does those things. This is how you live. He's nodding in agreement. He's chuckling along. So that's, that's true for all of us. But when it comes to our relationship with God, at the instant of salvation, when we are born again, we are adopted into God's royal family, and the Word of God is giving us the standards for how those in the family of God should live. But we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And when we do sin, we're no longer living like we're a member of God's family, even though we still are. We're living like we're still unbelievers, and we're acting as if we are still of our father, the devil. But we're not. We have been transferred into the royal family of God. 
that is how we are supposed to live. That's our position, but our experience is not what it should be. We're adopted. We are a new creation. We are created in Christ Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We are freed from sin. That's the point of Romans 6, 3 through 6, and the baptism by the Spirit, the shackles to the sin nature are broken. It's still there. It still seeks to uh, acquire that dominion over us again, and too often we put ourselves back under it, and that's the purpose of Romans 6, is that we are to reckon ourselves or consider ourselves dead to sin. We have this new life, but sometimes we still live like we're a dead person. We've been sealed or branded by the Holy Spirit to show that we are owned by God. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That's part of our position. But on the right-hand side, we now have that circle of our Christian experience, our walk. When we are walking as sons of the light, we are in that white circle and being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit we are walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, and we are abiding in Christ, John 15.1 through 10. But when we sin, we let the sin nature dominate our life, and we're no longer walking in the light. We're walking like children of darkness. We are no longer walking by the Spirit, but walking according to the sin nature, and we're said to be fleshly. The old English word was carnal. The only way to recover is to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9, and the promise is because Christ has already paid for all of our sins, then we are instantly forgiven and cleansed of all sin. And at that point, God wipes the slate clean, forgets about our sins, separates them as far from us as the east is from the west, and we can just keep right on, right on moving. And often I use the illustration of an athlete. An athlete sins. In baseball, they call it an error. So you commit an error, but if you're a professional athlete, you try not to let that bother you, and you wipe the slate clean, and you keep moving forward. You forget it. It's in the past. That's what Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind us and pressing on to the high calling of Christ. So we confess our sin and and we move forward. So the issue is, positionally, we are in Christ. Experientially, we may be walking in the light, or we may not. Now, when we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, let me give you a little pop quiz here. The first verse says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins is in in trespasses and sins positional or experiential that's positional then we get into the next verse in which you once walked experience a positional or experience that's experience so we have to keep those two categories clearly in mind as we walk our way through Ephesians chapter 2. Now, what's described here, as we pointed out, is spiritual death. We have to answer the question, what is spiritual death? And how does a spiritually dead person hear and understand the gospel? So, the 
three verses say, and y'all, he's talking to the Gentiles, and y'all who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, that is, he just, the which only refers to the sins. It doesn't refer to trespasses. It's a uh, feminine noun. It refers to the feminine noun of sins. And sins is the broader category. Trespasses is a more narrow one. And so by using the broader term, he includes both. In which sins y'all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then in verse 3 says, among whom also we all conducted ourselves. The we contextually is we Jews. We were the first ones saved and entering into the body of Christ, but now Gentiles are part of the body of Christ. Both of us were guilty of sins. We didn't have uh, a leg up. We weren't a little bit less sinful, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. So among whom, that is among the sons of disobedience. And I pointed out the term sons of disobedience, where it's used in the New Testament, always refers to unbelievers. So Paul there is saying, among whom we walked, we walked among the sons of disobedience. And the sons of disobedience were characterized by being dead in their trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So he's saying we're both in the same boat. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody has has uh, come short of the glory of God's character, all of his essence. So as we look at this verse, first verse, you were dead in trespasses and sins, that's defined further in Ephesians 4.18 as those having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. See, it's important to understand they're not like a corpse. This analogy that you hear from Calvinists is a false analogy. Now, this word alienated has that idea of being separated, of being estranged. So we are estranged from God, and this is the way to understand spiritual death is separation from the source of life, not non-existent, not like a corpse that can't hear, can't respond in terms of just wanting to know more about God, has no knowledge of the Bible. Something has to happen. So this word, apolutriao, uh, is also used in Ephesians 2.12, talking about the fact that y'all, the Gentiles, were previously, before this dispensation, were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were in existence, but they were estranged or separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, this next part is what we need to understand in terms of thinking about uh, our regeneration here, because if you're alienated from God, you have to be restored. And just a reminder of what I showed you earlier, this means that you have to go from spiritual death, which is alienated from God, means they don't have a human spirit that enables them to have a relationship with God or to understand the things of God. So something has to happen. How does that spiritually dead person come to understand the truth of Scripture? Now, Calvinists will say that dead men cannot hear, they cannot exercise positive volition, they can't think about spiritual things, they can't respond to the gospel, so therefore, dead men must first be made alive 
And then they can hear, and then they can believe. For them, regeneration precedes faith, and faith has to be given by God because it's different from any other kind of faith. But the Scripture contradicts this. In John 5.25, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will not hear the voice of the Son of God. Is that what it said? No. The dead will hear. Amazing. Jesus is saying that the spiritually dead person can hear. Calvinists say the spiritually dead person can't hear. For, for the Calvinists, positive volition is considered meritorious. Hearing and understanding must be meritorious. Believing is, is meritorious. And this is, this, is just, this is just bogus, fake theology. Faith, is, faith has merit only because the one in whom we believe has done the work. The merit is what was done on the cross, not in the believing. Anybody can believe. You got up this morning and you looked at your clock and you believed that it was telling you exactly what time it was. You were uh, assumed there was no power outage during the night and that the clock was accurate. You believed that. Anybody can believe and and people do believe just about anything. It is what they believe. It is the content of the faith that is important. That we are saved, Scripture says, by faith in Christ Jesus. Not just faith in God, not just faith that somehow it'll all work out, but by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that by believing we will have life in his name. Now, in John chapter 16, our Lord is talking to his disciples. It's the night before he went to the cross. Earlier they had the Last Supper, the Last Seder, and he re, re, um, re, repurposed the wine and repurposed the bread. Then he began to teach them about what was going to happen in terms of the new church age. One of the primary themes in John 14, 15, and 16 is that he is going to leave but he is going to send a replacement comforter. Okay, that's probably the overall most common word for translating it. I think there's different nuances there. But he calls himself a paraclete, a comforter, one who came to tell the truth, and he's going to be replaced by another one who is the Holy Spirit. And so as he is explaining this in John 16, he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. That's the background. The Holy Spirit's coming. This is what he's going to do. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. He's going to do these three things. And it all hinges on understanding that word that is uh, translated uh, convict. Convict isn't a word that is 
probably the best today. Most translators use the word convince, which is, catches the idea of the Greek word. The Greek word is the word elenko. All scripture has been breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof. That's elenko. Okay, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, sin is a word that is not user-friendly to people who have never been to church and never studied the Bible. They think that sin is restricted to a few extremely horrible things, and they often think you are insulting them when you say they're a sinner. The Bible uses a word that simply means you missed the mark. You, you failed. You committed an error. You did something that wasn't right and according to God's standard. And all of us have done things that aren't right. We have failed in many different areas, some that we may say aren't so big and important, others in more major areas. But he is going to come and convince believers of sin. Is that what it says? He convicts the world. He convicts the world of sin. Now, this word convict, if you look in the Greek dictionaries, there are several different nuances to it, but it has the idea of convicting or convincing someone of something, pointing out to them an error and with a view towards correcting them. So that's what he's going to do. And the object of this is the world. And when it looks at this world, the, this word, The word in the Greek is cosmos, from which we get our word cosmetic. Now, cosmos has to do with root idea is an orderly system. That's why it comes over as cosmetic, so you put your face on ladies and you organize and order your face. So that's the idea in cosmos. But in the Bible, the word cosmos has to do with the thought system of those who are not conformed to to, to the word of God. So the, co- the, the word cosmos relates to all kinds of things. The first time I really had a consciousness of this word, I was about 16 years old, and we had a young uh, 28-year-old uh, senior at Dallas Seminary teaching an adult Sunday school class at a Baraka church named Charlie Clough. And he used this phrase, cosmos diabolicos, and I went, what in the world is that? And uh, he used that because that was a word that, Frank, uh, that Lewis Berry Chafer used. Chafer was the founder of Dallas Seminary, wrote a seven-volume uh, systematic theology, and it describes the, the world order apart from God, apart from Christ. It's an orderly system of thinking. Now, it may involve a lot of different uh, facets to it. The cosmos as the world system involves many different religions and many different philosophies. It may be a religion worshiping Allah. It may be a religion that doesn't have a personal infinite God such as Buddhism or Hinduism. It may be a philosophical system such as secular humanism or existentialism or postmodernism. Uh, All of those are just different ways in which man expresses two satanic ideas that were evident in Satan's rebellion against God. Number one, the assertion of autonomy, independence from God, and number two, antagonism, hatred of God, hatred of his word, hatred of the cross. So all world systems manifest those two ideas. 
They are all contrary to Christianity. That is what the world represents, and so the world needs to be convicted of sin, that they have violated God's standard. Secondly, of righteousness, and third, of judgment. Lewisbury Chafer writes in his Systematic Theology, in view of a finished work by Christ, wherein sin is born and all blessings are secured, the immeasurable failure for the individual for whom Christ has died is that he does not believe on him. It is noticeable, though, though contrary to general opinion, that the Spirit does not enlighten the mind with respect to all the sins the individual has committed. It is not a matter of creating shame or remorse concerning sin, nor is it so much as a reminder of sin that has been committed. Though there is nothing, on the other hand, to preclude sorrow and consciousness of sin. It is rather that since sin has been borne by Christ, there remains the one great and only responsibility of one's attitude toward the Savior who bore the sin. He convicts the world not of sins, but of sin. What is that sin? It is the rejection of Christ. This is what Chafer is saying. He says, The unbelief the Lord declared is the basis of final... He said, This unbelief, that is the unbelief of rejection of the cross... This unbelief, the Lord declared, is the basis of final condemnation. When he said, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. See, it is not that he hasn't been good enough, that he hasn't been part of the right church or the right religion. It is the single factor that he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So this is the focal point. I'm going to pass on the rest of that of what the Holy Spirit convicts the world of. It's defined in verse 9 of sin because they do not believe in me. So when you're evangelized, you're witnessing to somebody, it's not about their sins. The Holy Spirit is going to convict them of their sin of unbelief. So that's how we are to present the gospel. Why work? give the Holy Spirit extra work to unravel our bad stuff, our bad communication. We are to explain that Jesus is the only way. It's only by faith that they have eternal life. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to be convicting them of, that they are, uh, have, uh, have, are guilty of sin, singular and because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, he says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. He convicts of righteousness because we do not have righteousness. Isaiah says all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6. All of our works of righteousness, that's the best that we have to offer. God says that's just filthy, garbage, rags, it's irrelevant. It's not that good. It may be a lot better than the person next to you, but when it comes to God's standard, it just doesn't measure measure up. And then we come to the last part, which talks about uh, in John, John. I'll come back to that in a minute. What we have here is the the recognition that the whole world. Let me back up. I got ahead of myself. Uh, right of of sin because they don't believe in me of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me you see me no more and in John sixteen eleven 
which I think I left out this morning in the verse, so I've got to turn to it, John 16, 11. It's rough getting up after a late night with the Astros and you know, have run out of time get it, pulling everything together. Okay, John 16, 11. of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So he convicts of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is Satan. Now that's interesting because he's called the prince of the power of the air in our passage in Ephesians chapter 1, and he is also called the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Now, that's a fascinating passage because it begins in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, but that doesn't mean that they can't respond. It just means it's more difficult. It's veiled. Their minds, the God of this age, has blinded. Now, let me ask you a question. If a person is, according to the Calvinists, spiritually dead where they can't have positive volition, they can't hear, They can't respond. They can't have faith unless God does all of that for them, makes them alive before they believe. Then why is it necessary for Satan to blind the minds of a completely dead corpse? It would not be necessary at all because they can't do anything. So again, this verse completely turns the Calvinist view on its head. It is completely wrong. Scripture says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So this is where verse uh, 2 goes on, talking about our walk according to the course of this world. Verse uh, 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the cosmic system. You were er antagonistic to God and arrogant. And this world system is energized by Satan. It's Satan's thinking, and you are walking according to the prince of the power of the air. That is another title for Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, that that phrase, the air, was in Greek thought, this is the atmosphere around the earth. This was the domain of the uh, immaterial spirits. So this is talking about the area of the demons and their activities and that it's energized by the spirit that is Satan who now works in the sons of disobedience. Then we come to verse 3 where he says, among whom, that is among these sons of disobedience also we all, that is we Jews, all once conducted our lives. On a strepho in the Greek, it is parallel to walking. It is conducting our lifestyle and it is Uh, energized by and motivated by the lust of our flesh, a term for the sin nature, fulfilling the desires or the lust of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In the scripture it says those who reject God, reject the gospel, are objects of God's wrath. That's his judgment in time. And so they are just like the Gentiles. They are under the condemnation of God as unbelievers. And then he says, just as the others. The others being just, he's talking about the Jews, just as the others, that is just as the 
unbelieving Gentiles. So this is the problem. The problem is we're spiritually dead. That doesn't mean we can't look at the at the testimony of God revealed non-verbally in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can look at the stars, look at creation, and say, I want to know how this came to be. I want to know if there's a God. I want to know what's out there. And God will bring more specific revelation to that person. And just because they exercise positive volition at the instant that they become conscious of a, of a God doesn't mean they'll respond positively to the gospel, but it's the first step. And so eventually they will hear the gospel because God will bring them someone who will give them the gospel. And then when they believe, not when they commit their life to Christ, pistis does not mean commit. It means believe. Only when they believe in Christ. When you look at John 3.18, they're condemned because they have not believed, not because they have not committed themselves to Christ, not because they have asked Christ into their life, not because they have uh, asked Christ to enter into their their whole whole being. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In Revelation chapter 3, uh, 20 is not talking about salvation. It's talking about fellowship. It's a letter addressed to carnal Christians to get right with God and to have fellowship with him. The path to salvation to recover from spiritual death is simply faith in Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to study your word, to come to understand it more fully, more accurately. Father, we're thankful that we have a salvation that is it's not dependent on us because we cannot regenerate ourselves, we cannot bring new life, but we have responded to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit where he has convicted the world of sin and convicted the world of their unbelief of Christ and their lack of righteousness and that they are following the course of the God of this age. And Father, we pray that uh, we might come to understand this more fully, that we may more accurately present the gospel to those around us, understanding that that is part of our mission in this church age. And Father, we are also thankful for the fact that today we have uh, the opportunity to present the gospel to those who are here who may not have ever trusted Christ as Savior, as well as those who are listening online or those who will eventually listen uh, to this recording. And Father, we pray that you would use this to open the eyes of their soul to the truth of the gospel, that they would believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him, and that we know that at that instant they will be given new life in Christ and be born again and enter into a new life that can never be taken from them. Now, Father, we pray that you would encourage and challenge each of us in our daily spiritual life and spiritual walk, that we might pursue you and pursue the knowledge of your word ever more diligently. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.